everything that there is. Um, I, I'm pretty much competitive when it comes to like actually about everything, okay? Uh, I'll make anything into a competition, like, okay, who eats, you know, the dinner the fastest, or who can, you know, go from here to there the fastest, let's, let's get to this destination, we'll drive there, whoever gets their fastest wins, or, like, I'll, I'll figure something out and make it into some kind of, you know, competition, and I'm really competitive about it. I want to, to win in the midst of that, and so that's probably a, a big quirk of mine, something that I, that I have that, that's been with me since I was really young. Even with my own uh, two daughters right now, I, I, when we do like foot races where I like, you know, I'm going to race you here, like I usually let them win, but every once in a while I have to make sure I win to, you know, show, assert my dominance over them and to be like, you know, who's your daddy? You know, it's, it's me, right? <laughs> so I, I have to do these things to, to show, but I have a problem. I know, I admit, I admit, I'm, I'm a little too competitive, but I've always grown up to be very competitive. And as I was growing up to be competitive, you know, one of my favorite Bible stories uh, was about this prophet named Elijah. And this isn't one of the more well-known, you know, children Bible stories, but you might be familiar with it. And it's a Bible story that comes out of the passage in 1 Kings 18. And this is where Elijah pits himself against the prophets of Baal. And the story goes that Elijah, a prophet of God, challenges the prophets of Baal to a showdown uh, of asking their idol god or their god, respective god, to, to, to show himself. And so what, the, what was happening at that point was that, that uh, Elijah tells these 450 prophets of Baal uh, to get a bull, sacrifice this bull, and then put it on an altar and then ask their god to send down a fire. And so these 450 prophets go ahead and they do this, and they try as hard as they can, they pray as much as they can, they yell out to their god Baal, and and nothing happens. And instead, Elijah goes, he takes his bull, sacrifices it, lays it down on the altar, and then to make it more even difficult on himself, he tells the others to drench the sacrifice with three buckets of water. That way it wouldn't leave any doubt, you know, where this fire, that, that this fire was a supernatural fire and, and that, you know, it would show that his God is the most powerful God. And so Elijah does this and he prays to God to send down his fire. And like that, fire falls down, engulfs the altar, right, with the, the sacrifice bowl, burns it up, burns up all the wood and even dries up all the water that it spilled over. And then at that moment, everyone who was watching fell down to their knees and realized and remembered that God was the true and almighty God. The, the victor was God over Baal. And, and I loved hearing this story as a kid because it was like, you know, God wins. God, God's the winner, right? And, and I loved winners. I loved winning. And, and here God is winning, right? He, he is the winner in all of this. And I felt like it taught me as this young boy that, that I could have confidence in knowing that I'm on the winning side of history and, and that my God is stronger than any force or any opposition. So knowing that I was a competitive kid, it makes sense that this would be one of my favorite Bible stories, okay? But the reason why I bring up this passage uh, that seems kind of random for us in this morning is, is that I feel like there's a great parallel lesson to be learned from this story that, that's very relevant to us today. And I think there's a clear parallel to some of the the temptations that we struggle with today. And I'm not saying that we live in a culture where, um, you know, there are people in the world that continue to to, to worship a god like Baal, or or they worship specifically Baal, because we realize that that particular religion has not, you know, does not exist today. 
we don't hear about people still worshiping a god named Baal. But I will say that there's often a competing voice that distracts us away from the one true God. There's always something in every age and every time where there's a voice that competes against the lordship of God. Whether it be another religious system like Buddhism or or Hinduism, or even if it's not a religious system, it could be even a popular belief in in society. You know, some would say that that the, the popular belief here right now is the belief in the American dream. That as long as you believe in the American system, work hard at whatever it is that you're good at, and and you do all that you can, you will one day become successful. You will one day become rich. You will one day have everything that you never thought that you could have. As I did some more study about this this particular passage, and if you do this, um, you realize that a lot of these ancient religions that we have in the Old Testament, uh, in particular this one of the worship of Baal, They show a lot of resemblance to the competing voices that we have today uh, against Christianity. So so back then, the reason why people would worship Baal was because they associated the worship of this God to give you material blessing. They believed that if you worshipped a God like Baal, that Baal would bless you with more prosperity, with more riches, with more wealth, and with more material things. Everyone thought that if you worshipped a God like Baal, then you'd be blessed with more money and more possessions. If you think about it now, that's essentially the the idolatry of wealth and money. Baal represented this evil desire to love money and material blessings. And as you think about it, that's actually something that many people in this world today struggle with as well, including many Christians. There's this overwhelming culture in our society, whether whether you want to call it the American dream or not, but this desire for you to pursue after success in wealth and material blessings. When it comes to the value of our lives or how we value other people, we often base it on how successful you might be in your career or how much money you have in your bank account, how big your house is, how nice or how many cars that you might have, right? In today's society, we place a high value on how much wealth or money a person has acquired over the years. When you think of people like Bill Gates, Mark Cuban, or or Paul Allen, you think these guys made it and that they're these big shots in in life. Why? Because they were able to accumulate this great amount of wealth wealth, and they are, are success stories in this whole idea of the American dream. And so we pass down the same kind of thinking to ourselves and to our children. We want to to strive and and make more money so that we can be more comfortable, more financially secure, right? So that maybe people can come to respect us maybe. With, With more money, society has told us you become more respected. You become more powerful. When it comes to our children, We push our children to study hard or to do well in some sport or we tell them to add on all these extracurricular things so that they can pad their their resume so that they can get into a really good college and then from there they can study hard and then they get a well-paying job and then go towards a, a successful career. You know, I've actually never met a set of parents, including my own parents, um, that from a young age told their kids, uh, read the Bible a lot, pray a lot so that one day you can become a pastor, right? Like, have you met anyone like that? No, I have never met, right? I seriously have not met a parent that, that said this, right? Most normal parents don't push their kids into becoming like a humble, poor pastor, right? or poor missionary, right? 
what drives society and drives our culture is the desire to be more successful and in essence to make more money and to accumulate more wealth and to achieve financial security. You look at any of the commercials that you might watch on TV. What's the main objective of all of these commercials or these advertisements? Their objective is to feed into your desire to want something, especially the very thing that they are selling. Right? Our, con uh, our culture constantly feeds into our desire for more things and more wealth. Usually the message of these commercials is that if you buy this thing, if you buy this nice car, if you eat this food, or whatever it might be, that if you do that, then you will become happy. But does it really bring on true happiness? Usually not. At the time of Elijah, the people were worshiping this competing god, Baal, because they had an idolatry of wealth, money, and material possessions. Materialism was at the core of their idolatry. But in this story, Elijah wins in, in the showdown. And he comes to reveal how false this idolatry was. Elijah shows the people of God that God is the one true God and that this idol Baal was powerless. It just had this allure of false prosperity. As you think about it, that's essentially what materialism is really like. It has an allure to it, but, but never truly satisfied. People say materialism is like drinking salt water. You could be thirsty, wanting water to, to quench your thirst, and you find salt water. Maybe that could possibly do it to quench your thirst. Instead, you find out when you drink more of that salt water, you become more thirsty, and then your th their thirst is never quenched. And eventually, if all you drink is salt water, you die. You will die. That's why materialism and greed is actually so dangerous. If you follow it down this path and you just let it run over your life, it will lead to your death. We are in a message series talking about relationships that work and those that don't. And my message today isn't directly tied to a particular relationship that works. Instead, what I wanted to address is, is this idea that if you have a healthy relationship or a correct understanding of wealth or, or of materialism, of material blessings, right? If you are able to put materialism and greed in check, that it will enable you to have a better relationship with your loved ones. And most importantly, allow you to have a better and deeper relationship with God. If you can get to a place where your possessions don't own you, it, it will make a difference in all of your relationships. And so if you're able to guard yourself against materialism and greed and the want for power and, and success and status, then your personal relationships will be at a far healthier place. And so today, I'll be more addressing this relationship that we have against materialism and how we guard against that and guard against the desire for more money. And so with that, I wanted to take a look at a passage in which the Apostle Paul writes a letter to one of his students, one of his protégés. And he, so Paul writes this letter to Timothy to give him some final instructions on how to live in this world. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you can turn to 1 Timothy 6. And, and the passage that I'm going to read from is 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 19. Okay? And if you don't have your Bible with you, uh, they'll probably be just projected right up on the screen, and you can just follow along up there. So let me read it for us. 1 Timothy 6, 6-19. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires 
that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is, the, is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no, no one has seen or can see, to him be honor, might, forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to be good, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is the word of God. Would you just bow your heads for a quick moment in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you, Lord, um, just for the many blessings, Lord, that you bestow upon us, God. And we're just very thankful in the ways in which uh, you continue to, to show us how we could continue to grow. And, and I pray, Lord, that as we uh, just read your scripture, God, um, that you would really illuminate your word so that it would really sharpen us. It would allow us to grow and to be refined more and more into you, God. And so I ask, God, Lord, that you would just open up our hearts, open up our ears, open up our minds, uh, so that we'd be able to receive from you and that we would be able to, to submit our lives to you uh, and wanting you to, to transform it. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room be pleasing unto you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So like I said, uh, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul gives to one of his mentees. And, and Paul gives some wise counsel to Timothy about how he is to live in this world. And the same temptation of wanting more material blessings is actually happening in the time of this written letter, uh, as it probably often happens here today in our lives. And so it becomes a really relevant uh, instructions to us now. And it's a strong warning by Paul to Timothy about learning to be content. Paul is teaching Timothy, as well as us, as, the, uh, that we're, as we're reading this scripture as well, that there, we have to move toward being a people of contentment. Contentment is, is something very difficult to live out in, in, in our lives, and in our world today. Our culture, again, tries to tell us that we always need to have more or that we don't have enough. Uh, like I said before, if you look at any commercials these days, it's always trying to sell you something. Or they're often trying to drill in this message that you need whatever it is that they're selling. They're trying to give a message that goes contrary to a person trying to be content. That is content. Contentment is this idea that you look at your life and all the things that you have, the blessings that you've been given, and you realize that you have enough. Right? To clarify, contentment is not being indifferent to the things that you have or, or the situation that you're in. It, not the sense where you're apathetic or you're detached from it. But instead that you do care about your situation, you do care about your needs, but you're content with what you have and the blessings that God has already given you. 
They actually say that the people who have the most in terms of money and possessions, they have the most propensity to be discontent. That's probably not the most surprising discovery, right? Paul even says in verse 10 that the people who are eager for money are the ones that wander from their faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. But we can see it all throughout our world today, as it's usually the people who are blessed with the most that are often the most discontent and the most unhappy with their lives. And it's often the people that don't have that much, right, are the ones that have maybe the the greatest joy and the happiness in their lives. I don't know if you've ever been on a short-term mission, and I encourage you, if you have never been on short-term missions, that it's a great way for you to go and and act out and be obedient to God's call. But what it also does is that expands your perspective. But if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip, people tend to say that whenever you go on missions, it's like you receive more than you've been able to give. And I think the reason why people say this is that because when you go into these other countries and other situations where people might not be as blessed in terms of material goods or or finances or wealth, we find that those same people are often living as if they're the most blessed in the world. They, They don't have much, but they're still some of the happiest people. And so you look at their lives and they put us first world countries to shame. Because if we are truly honest with ourselves, and we realize, and we look at our lives, we realize that we are so blessed. But for some reason, we're unable to hold that same amount of joy as those that are, might be in more dire or poorer situations. But the Apostle Paul commands Timothy to be content. And there's three practical takeaways or steps that I feel like God wants us to learn for us to guard against materialism. And the first step is that, and this is probably the most critical one to defeating this temptation of greed and materialism, and that's combating it with generosity. The antidote to greed and materialism is generosity. When you are able to generously give to others, what you're doing is you're saying that this wealth, this money, they don't have power over you. Just as a quick aside, wealth and money aren't considered bad things in God's eyes. It says in this passage that the love of money is the root of all, is a root of all evil. All throughout the Gospels, you know, Jesus doesn't say that money is bad or evil, but instead he often alludes to the fact that the love and desire for money is evil, or serving this master of money, that that, that is evil, because it competes against you serving your heavenly Father. We see in Scripture that there are moments that God blesses people in the Bible with great wealth and material possessions. You look at King Solomon. He had so much wealth that silver, he said, was just of no value to him because it wasn't even as good of a, a, as a mineral or a jewelry to him. But the thing is, God doesn't give you more money and more wealth so that it can raise your standard of living. God gives you more money and wealth so that it raises your standard of giving. When God blesses people with more money, it's so that it gives them more opportunities to be generous with it. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy in verse 18 of the passage that people who are rich in the present day should be generous and willing to share. I'm always wowed when I meet uh, wealthy people who are devoted followers of Jesus and they live this humble and generous lifestyle. I knew this one guy in New York where he was a hedge fund owner, and so he had a lot of money. He had all this wealth that he could easily buy the most exotic and expensive cars, like 25 of them, and it wouldn't even put a dent in his wallet. 
But this particular guy chooses to drive around a Honda Odyssey every single day. And I'm not saying Honda Odysseys are cheap cars. They're actually kind of expensive, but they're really practical and good cars. We actually have a Honda Odyssey, right? But he had all this wealth, and he instead did not use that to, to buy himself all these nice things, but instead he uses that to be generous. He was one of the most generous people that, that, I, that I knew. He was generous to the church. He was generous and to others around him. He was just very generous. The most practical way to strengthen your spiritual muscle of generosity and to help you in combating against materialism and greed is through the spiritual discipline of tithing. Now, what is tithing? In the most basic sense, it's giving 10% of your income to the working of the church. As a baseline for the people of God all throughout the Old Testament, God commanded that, that they would give, they would start with the 10% of, of, their, of their income and use that as an offering. And then anything, anything on top of that was considered, you know, bonus. But it was, so that was the baseline. The tithing was the baseline, and then everything on top was also asked to be done. For some of you, you may have never tithed before in your life. And so this could be a very foreign concept. And if you've never tithed before and you think that 10% might be too difficult, then I would just suggest start somewhere else. Start maybe at 5%. And each year try to challenge yourself by giving one more percentage point higher the next, fall, the next year, right? And then when you get to finally 10%, don't stop there. Keep it going. Stretch yourself maybe to 11%, 12%. Challenge yourself to go beyond that 10%. What people don't realize is that tithing really is a spiritual discipline and exercise. When we begin to tithe and, and, and give, what that's doing is that that becomes an act of worship. And it's a, it's a sign of a submission to God. That as we tithe our money, we are saying to God that money doesn't hold power over our lives. And that we only serve God alone. We don't serve Baal, we don't serve our money, we don't serve materialism. We serve God and God alone. But also when we tithe, we are realizing that this blessing of money is not our own to hoard, but God's money that was given to us as a gift in something that is to be responsibly managed. Tithing and generous giving is really the critical antidote to materialism and greed. And it's a spiritual discipline that we could all continue to grow in. I was thinking about this And I think it's definitely wise uh, for us as parents to challenge our children to begin tithing. I, I know when I was younger and I was growing up in the church, my parents used to give me a crisp dollar bill, and then they would tell me, hey, go and put it in the offering basket, right? And that'll be your offering. And so I would do that every single week, right? But as I realized, I had no skin in the game. That wasn't my money. My parents just gave it to me to, to give, right? But I remember when I got older and I, I was able to, to go and do some more chores and such, what I did was I actually started mowing lawns in, in the neighborhood. And I used to mow, mow these pretty huge lawns in, in, the, in the area where I grew up in. And each, each lawn, I'd maybe get like $10 or $20. And so for me at a, as a kid, that was actually a lot of money. And so each time I, I would go home and I'd become so happy because I made all this money. And, and I'd hopefully, you know, hoping that I could save it all up and maybe buy a video game or something. But I remember my dad sitting me down one of the first few times where I finally got, got paid and I got the money. And he told me that God had blessed me with this money. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I worked for this money, all right? This is, this is my money, right? And then my brother, and my, my dad comes and he sits me down and he goes, no, no, no. 
See, God gave you the strength for you to be able to work, right, and to be able to mow that lawn. And you have to remember that the other things that, that you have, that you take for granted, the food that I give you, right, the food that, that, that you eat and all the, uh, the different blessings that you have each day, that's actually God giving it to you through me. Right? And so, so that's God's blessing to you. And so God's also blessing you with this money. And so this is also God's blessing to you. And so then he says, you know, so our response is then to give 10% back to God and to the building of the church. And so I remember uh, as this young kid hearing those words from my dad, and I'm like, uh, begrudgingly, I was like, all right, fine, I'll tie this, right? And it was only like a dollar or two dollars, right? But I, I went, and I went, and I used it, and I tithed it to God. And it was a, a great lesson for me as a, as a young kid, because it held on to today as an adult, that I realized that this is, is a spiritual discipline, and it's something that allows me to, to recognize that, these, that, that this is from God. So parents, it, it's never too early to teach your kids to be able to tithe and to learn to be generous. How great would it be if we can model that to our kids by being generous with other people around us? And that way you put materialism in its place. Okay, I think I said enough for that, for that one. Let's move on to the second step. The second step that we need to actively combat and guard against materialism and greed is to receive the freedom we already have from God and to realize just how blessed we already are. Just as we were talking about being people who are content, we learn to be content when we come to realize again how blessed we already are. One of the biggest struggles to being content people is that there's this temptation to want to compare. And when it comes to this idea of being rich, have you ever thought about this? But most people never think they're actually rich. Often if you encounter some wealthy people and you say to them, man, you're, you're really loaded. You've got a, you got a nice car, you've got a, a nice house, man, you're really, really rich. The typical response is not, yeah, 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 that's true. I'm, I'm really lucky, right? It's usually, no, oh, no, 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 no. We're not rich. You know, we know these other guys who are really rich. They have an even nicer car. They have a bigger house than us, right? They, they make more money than us. They're rich. We're not rich, right? Most people don't think they're rich because they know of someone who is wealthier, right? Someone who they feel is more blessed. And so if you think about it, no one thinks they're rich unless they're the richest person in the world. And, and there's only one person who's probably the richest person in the world. And so everyone else probably thinks that there's someone else richer than them. And it seems like our satisfaction about our blessings and our wealth is not so much dependent on what we have, but actually more in comparison to what others have. There was a study that was done, that, that was done by the University of Warwick in the UK, which was called Money and Happiness. And what the study presented was that your rank of income, your income in comparison to your peers, led to more life satisfaction as opposed to the quantitative amount of your money or your income. So it was noted that people feel more happy when they know that they make more money than their friends and their colleagues. So no matter how much a person makes, they're always comparing to others, and if they feel like they're not making as much as someone else that they know, their happiness is affected by it. So it ends up that that person never really feels like they, they, never, they have enough, right? Because you'll always find someone who has more than you. 
We, we live in a world where it's more about comparing our blessings and wealth to what our friends and peers have. It's always this mentality of keeping up with the Joneses or, or keeping up with the Lees or, or keeping up with the Wantanabes. I, I was trying to figure out what the most common Japanese last name was, and I think I Googled, and this was one of them, so okay. So I don't know if it really is. But instead of learning how to be content with what we already have, we're filled with greed and envy and jealousy for what others have instead. We're constantly comparing our things, our blessings, our successes with those around us. And this study, as I mentioned, suggests that we're unable to become happy people because we've never become content with what we already have. Contentment is this idea or this mindset that we need to exercise and grow into. Paul says in verse 8 that as long as we have food and clothing, which many of us all have, we should simply be content with that. And we find that God commands us to be content and then to receive the freedom that comes from realizing how blessed we already are. I love telling the story uh, about the Amazonian spider monkeys. And and you've probably heard this one before in another sermon or or someone else tell it. Um, But this is a a really applicable application or illustration that that I can use for this. Uh, But if you haven't heard this story, I'll tell it to you, right? So there's these spider monkeys that that lived in the Amazon, right? And, And they were known to be this huge nuisance to the people in the area because one of the things that they would do that would be really annoying is is that they would actually poop into their hands and they'd take their feces and they would throw it at their enemies or they would throw it at any of the people that approached them. So if you were, you know, just a villager or a person that was living there and you're walking around, imagine getting hit in the face over constantly with like, you know, monkey's poop. Like, it just wouldn't be nice. And so the, 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 the people in the area, they were just getting really annoyed of these spider monkeys. So they wanted them to move to another area of, of, the, air, of the place. And so they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we catch these spider monkeys? And these spider monkeys were very nimble. They were really quick. And so they weren't the, the easiest to catch. And so they would take a net and they'd try to put it on them, but they would just wiggle out of it. They'd free themselves and they'd get out, right? And so they, as they were thinking about it, they, they devised all these different things. Through trial and error, they finally figured out how they would trap these spider monkeys. And so this is what they figured out. So they would go and they would take this large jar, right? And it had a, a large jar. It was pretty heavy and a slender opening at the top, right? And it was big enough for a spider monkey to be able to reach its arm into it. And so then they would go and they'd take these jars, right? And they would go and they'd put these little, the nuts and these berries that these spider monkeys would love to eat, right? And so they would set a few of them up and they'd put it in this area. And then they would wait, So they would wait, and and then they would just wait around, and then the spider monkey would go and maybe smell a little bit of the the aroma of the the nuts and the berries, and then little by little creep in, right? And then go and look into the the jar and look inside it, and it's the nuts and berries that they love and they crave, right? And then they go and they reach their arm into that, that jar. And then they go and they take a fistful of the nuts and the berries, Right? And, and they're like excited to be able to eat their food. And then they go and they pull their arm out. But they realize because they have a clench, they've clenched their fist and they have a fistful of stuff, they have, they're not able to get through the opening. And so they can't get their arm out, right? And so the, the, the jar is too heavy for them to pick it up on their own and, t- and to run away. And so they're just frantically trying to figure out how to get, get the, the nuts and the berries out of the jar, all that's happening, then the hunters go and they take that as their cue to go and catch these spider monkeys. So they go and they walk over to the spider monkey and the spider monkey is all wrestling with his arm and, and it's just trying to get out and, and it doesn't let go. And so then the, the hunters would go and then tie up the spider monkeys and then they've trapped 
the spider monkey, and it leads to their doom, right? And if you think about it, I think a lot of us act like these spider monkeys. Instead of enjoying the freedom, the blessings that we already have, we become jealous and greedy people that always look for more and more. This desire to want more, to want more wealth, to want more material blessings becomes our downfall. And really the call and the challenge for us is to learn to be content with what you've already been given. I'm sure many of us can take an honest look at our lives and we can say, wow, God has really blessed me. We have all these blessings right in front of our faces, but we continue to look elsewhere or we continue to desire to have more and more. And we act like this spider monkey that's just unable to to let go of that desire to want more. And it becomes our downfall. And Paul gives this command to be content and to accept and receive the freedom of knowing that you are already blessed. But it requires us to let go of that temptation to want more. That's the second step. Here's the last step. The last step is that we need to recognize where all our blessings flow from and to direct our affection and our love not to the blessings, but to the giver of those blessings. Paul charges Timothy to fight the good fight of faith and to take hold of the eternal life to which you and I and each of us were called when you made your good confession. What Paul is saying is that he's reminding Timothy of his original confession of faith into that time in which Timothy decided to surrender his life to God. And so Paul is challenging Timothy to remember who God is and to persevere in this good fight by focusing back all our affection and our focus and our love back to the Heavenly Father. And the same reminder is true for ourselves, that we would go and be reminded and recognize and remember where our blessings flow from. And who gives us those blessings? When I was younger, I had an infatuation with uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I used to watch the cartoon every day after I would come home from school, right? And it would be like the highlight of my day is watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, And I think maybe for Halloween, I was probably a Ninja Turtle for like five, six years and straight. Like, it's like every year, like, oh, Abe's going to be a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Okay, he was that last year and the year before that, right? Like, I, that, that was, I was infatuated with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But I remember this was, it was like my seventh or eighth, eight-year-old birthday. And, and I really wanted this toy uh, that, was, that, that was really popular at the time, right? And I watched the commercial and I saw it. And, and I wanted this big turtle blimp. Because in the TV shows, the turtles would fly in this turtle blimp. And, and I just wanted to have that thing, right? And so I made sure to let my mom know that I really wanted this toy. Uh, around this time, uh, when I was growing up, my family wasn't really that well off financially. Uh, my father was a pastor of a small Korean church at the time, and, and my parents weren't, weren't doing that well you know, in terms financially, but they were doing their best they could to, to support our family. And so since my father didn't make like, a huge salary or anything, my mom also had to work to support us as a family. And so my mom used to work at the U.S. Postal Service doing this really late midnight shift, working minimum wage at the time. And so I vaguely remember as a kid how she would put me to bed at night, and then she would go off to work, and then she would come back early in the morning, right when we would wake up, uh, and then make us breakfast, bring me to school, and then she would go back home, take a nap, and then she would pick me up later on. Right? And, and I remember, so I remember that my birthday funk finally coming up. 
and, and I had this small gathering with, with family and a few, you know, church friends and few church members, and, and the, the birthday was great, the party was great, and I was excited for the most favorite part of, of the birthday party, which is the opening of the birthday gifts. And so the birthday come, cake comes out, and then everyone brings out their gifts, right? And so I'm opening each gift, and I'm, I'm like hoping that it would be some kind of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toy, right? And maybe with like socks or something. I don't know. It was something, and I'd say thank you, thank you, right? And I get it. And then there was a lot of good gifts in there. And then I realized that I had opened all the different gifts, but I, I didn't get the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle blimp, right? And then I also realized that my mom hadn't given me a gift yet. And so I remember I blurted out to my mom, and I said, hey! How come you didn't give me a gift? Where's, where's your gift, right? And then my mom recognizes, she's like, oh, no, no, I, I have a gift. She runs back to her bedroom, right? And she goes and she pulls out this big box, right? And a, and a wrapped box. And I look at it and my eyes get wide and I'm like excited. I'm like, well, could that be it? Could that be the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle blimp, right? And then she places it right in front of me. And then I open up the wrapping and there it is. It's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle blimp, right? And so I'm ecstatic, I'm excited, I'm happy, right? And I, and I open it up, I tear open all the rest of the, the wrapping, and I open up the box, and then I, I start assembling it, I blow it up, and then I'm like showing it to all my friends, and I'm just so consumed by the, this gift, right? I, I, I'm like enjoying it. And I remember that I was so consumed by this gift that I didn't even remember to stop and thank my mom. I didn't realize that, that my mom had sacrificed so much, toiled through work just so that I can get this, this expensive gift for my birthday. Right? And, and when I finally got it, I didn't even care to thank the one that gave it to me, my mother. Only a few days after receiving this gift, I remember wanting to like experiment with it. And so I ended up, I remember I took, I took a pen and I started poking holes into the blimp, right? And, and it made it just useless, made it complete junk at that point. And I can only imagine what my mom was thinking, seeing me waste her hard-earned gift for her son. And now looking back, I realize just how spoiled and ungrateful I was. And most of the fact, I totally missed the point. My mother had sacrificed so much to give me this gift, and I totally forgot about her. I cared more about the gift than the giver of that gift. You see, I think we sometimes do that too, right? We do the same thing with the gifts that God has given us. God's given us all these blessings, more than enough for each of us, but we get so infatuated with the gifts and the blessings themselves that we forget and neglect the great giver of these gifts, and that's God, our Heavenly Father. We are constantly asking for more and more, never satisfied with what we already have. And so we begin to hurt the relationships of our loved ones. And we, we often neglect the most important relationship of all, our Heavenly Father. In our culture, and I've said it over and over again already, there's that constant pressure to accumulate more and more, to gain more wealth. But what gets lost in all of this, in this never-ending rat race to acquire more, is that our Heavenly Father gives us the greatest blessing and gift that we could have ever received. And that's in the ultimate gift of Jesus Christ. God the Father sends His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world out of His great love for us. And then Jesus goes then to die on the cross for our sins, our iniquities, our faults. And then He becomes resurrected from the dead. He defeats death. He defeats sin. 
And then he offers us this ultimate gift of new life and renewed hope. And then we become co-heirs with Christ, and we get to receive all the blessings that we could need. But often, like I did as a child, we miss the point. We forget that God has blessed us tremendously, and we instead complain about not having enough. And so the final challenge for us is that we would turn back to God and we would remember that initial confession that you have said, maybe in the past, in which you invited Jesus to be the Lord of your life. We're called to fight the good fight against materialism and greed by becoming generous people and content people. God calls us to realize that Jesus is simply enough for us. Jesus is the living water that quenches our thirst for more. With more materials and more money, we may gain more objects, but it can never satisfy our soul. And so the hope is that we could realize how much God loves us and wants the best for us, and that we will be moved and challenged to remain steadfast in our contentment. And we will delight in the truth that God gives us himself to us. And so as we learn to be a people of contentment, and to be people that are generous with the blessings we've been given. And if we can do those things, it should enable us to grow in healthy relationships with those around us. And more importantly, it will transform your relationship with your loving, good Father. It will deepen it to a level that you've never experienced before. That's my hope, that's my desire for each of us today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess in the many ways in which uh, we have become ungrateful children, ungrateful uh, the ways in which you have just blessed us so much. You've blessed us, Lord, with the greatest gift that we could ever receive, uh, your grace. You've gifted us with Uh, the sending of your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to die on our behalf, and allow us to become uh, reconciled with you, to allow us, Lord, to to become sons and daughters uh, of you. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, uh, to turn away from uh, this sense of, of wanting more, of complaining about what we don't have, But Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would be people that uh, become content with the blessings that you've already lavished upon us. And so I pray, Lord, that as we continue to grow uh, as as the people of God, that you would help us uh, to really learn to be generous, to learn to be content, and really understand, Lord, that you have blessed us so much. And that would then enable us, Lord, to have healthy relationships, loving relationships, Uh, with those around us. So we ask God, Lord, for for you to have your work and and your, your work done in our lives. Thank you, God, for all the ways in which you provide for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.